You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the podcast. PUT is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the podcast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Welcome to the podcast. This is Monique Whitney. I am the Executive Director of Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency. Really glad to have you here today. With me on our show is PUTS President Scott Newman. Scott, say hello. Hey, guys. Also joining us for the first time is our board member in Illinois, Owen Sullivan. Owen, say hi. Hi, it's good to meet you. Glad to be on here. Glad to have you. Thanks, Owen. And then finally, our guest today, who we are so excited to have on, a distinguished doctor, MBA, uh, investment analyst, Dr. John Borzarelli, who is also the author uh, behind drugpricetruth.org. Dr. Borzarelli, welcome. Thank you for having me. For the benefit of of people who are tuning in today, uh, Owen, Scott, John, and I and the PUP board began a conversation several weeks ago, actually it's been a few months now, back at the beginning of the year when we discovered we had some overlapping ideas on what's been happening in the US healthcare system about how drug prices are out of control, about who's behind it. And Scott, I know you and I were talking about this. You you had seen uh, some of John's tweets and we started talking about how it would be great to to get to know him and maybe have him come and talk to the, the pub board. Yeah, I think it would be a good listen for our, our listeners to hear John's story and have him talk a little bit about some of the attention he's been trying to get for the last several years, if I'm not mistaken, possibly even longer than that. But I'll, I'll let John tell that story. It's a, it's a pretty good story. Yeah, it really is a good story. But John, I was curious if you could just start by telling us a little bit, you know, about you and about how, how did you come into discovering some of the things that you talk about in your blog? So my background is I'm a, phys- you know, I'm a physician by training. I went to New York University School of Medicine a long time ago. I graduated in 1985, and I went to Columbia Business School as an MBA. And I was originally a family doctor, and I transitioned to working in the investment world. So for the last 30 years, I have been a dedicated professional healthcare investment analyst and portfolio manager, and that means that you follow everything in healthcare as closely as possible, particularly from the financial point of view. So I, I mean, how this all began, it kind of began a little serendipitously because it began from a very simple observation, which I made now, it was literally Christmas time of 2012, and I noticed in following all the companies I follow, certain drug companies and biotechnology companies and the pharmacy benefit managers that they were all making a lot of money off of, and this is brand drugs, separate from the generic issues that you guys have with DIRs. And I just noticed that all these companies, uh, the drug, certain drug companies were making enormous profits off of old blockbuster drugs in which the volume of the drugs was plummeting because of competition and their prescription volume dropping because of new drugs and generic alternatives. And they were making money purely because they were raising the prices. And, you know, that's just a simple observation. You don't normally get to raise prices on things when nobody's using a product anymore, never mind a drug. Um, And it just made no sense to me. And then when I looked at the other side of it, the insurance companies and the PBMs, which is, as you know, is a very concentrated business these days, they were also making money off these same drugs driven only by price increases. And so it it simply started as a stock thing because I couldn't understand why all these companies were doing so well. In the brand world, the general presumption has been, and it still is for the most part in the brand market, that these PBMs, which are now, you know, basically all combined with big insurance companies all in one, the general presumption has always been that they make their money by negotiating lower prices, rebates, discounts, for patients and clients, 
and then they keep part of those discounts, you know, for doing a good job, and pass on the savings to people. And, you know, that's how it used to be 20 years ago. And all of a sudden, that didn't seem to be happening anymore. So, you know, I just started looking into it as an investment analyst, you know, and I, I use the simple term, follow the money. How are they actually making money? And I just found out from doing research that, uh, you know, it was kind of a shock to me that uh, they weren't making money anymore the way they said they were making money from rebates, that there was the whole business model of how drug companies and PBMs operate had changed. And it actually had changed very suddenly with the onset of the Medicare Part D program, you know, which went into law in 2003 and was enacted in January of 2006. And all of a sudden, you know, back in, two, early, in 2005, a lot of these old brands, and the main ones where I focused on where it was most severe, were multiple sclerosis drugs, insulins, some cancer drugs, the big rheumatoid arthritis drugs like Humira, Enbrel, and then a whole bunch of other drugs, as you see from the cases I have. And I, I just started looking at this, and then I what I originally came across was a whole bunch of esoteric uh, articles in, uh, you know, things called the Specialty Pharmacy Times, because a lot of this began with these specialty drugs. I started reading about this stuff about this new form of payments called fees, and I had never, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I'd never even heard about this. These companies don't even really talk about this to this day. Just through basic research, I realized, you know, they were getting these fees in percentage of revenue list price contracts on a national level tied to massive price increases. And uh, I was like, what, what is this? Um, and then I started doing some research. There were some government reports, actually, about Medicare Part D, where this was actually one of the first things I covered, where they, uh, the PBMs disclosed that in Part D they weren't making any money from rebates. And that was, that was kind of the start. I said, if they're not making money on rebates, where are they making money? And exactly. Literally, yeah, literally over a few months, I realized that, oh, my God, they're making all their money on these fees, and they're not telling anybody. So that's really – and it all began with Medicare Part D. And if you could look at, if you look at my stuff on the website, you'll see every drug. It's like a hockey stick. The moment Medicare Part D began – you know, the drugs in Europe for all these drugs were the same price as in the U.S., and then they just started skyrocketing in America and everywhere else. They haven't gone up at all because they shouldn't. There's severe competition. The market shares and the volume of these drugs is plumbing, and it's still to this day. Yeah. I think it's also important to point out, if, if some of our listeners do not know, the rebate system with the Medicare Part D plan specifically states that those rebates go back to CMS. PBMs are not allowed to keep those. So you're right. Where is all this money being made if the contracts state a certain you know, amount of reimbursement and they're not allowed to keep rebates? How in the world are they growing on these particular items like they are? And that's a very interesting observation in a very young stage of this uh, on, your, on your behalf. So, yeah. So, so, and so the specifics of Medicare Part D that make this all possible is that like you said, the rebates have to be passed on. If they pay them with rebates, that means the prices go down. And so the next year, the starting point of the prices is lower. And so the drug companies make less and the PBMs have a lower starting point for the price for the next year. So it becomes this, you know, but if they, if they keep the prices going up, then they both make money. So the fees, the key thing with Medicare Part D is that the fees are excluded from the negotiated prices. So if they pay them with fees and not rebates, the, the prices go up and they both make more money. The catch of this, and, you know, and all of that, what we just talked about, is not necessarily anything wrong with that. The, the real issue is what are these fees supposed to be for? And these fees, which are called legitimate fees in Medicare Part D, are called bona fide service fees. And bona fide means they're supposed to be legitimate. And the law is actually very clear about this. It's really nothing subtle about this, that these fees are supposed to be payments for providing support to patients tied to the utilization of the drug and to be paid at a fair price. The, you know, the accounting actually, I think the, the term they use, isn't it, reasonable, which is hard to define? 
Well, there's a bunch of terms, but the main the main term is called fair market value. So it's got to mm-hmm. be a fair price representing reasonable compensation for le- providing legitimate services to help patients and right. support the utilization of the drugs. So that's why in these cases, if the drug is going up in use, yeah, then the fees they get, they should go up in use. But if you're, if you're paying them, and the, what's happening in the most extreme situations is if you're paying them fees, and, and remember, the key is these are tied to the list prices. So it's before any potential rebates. So if mm-hmm. you're paying them fees on these list prices and you're raising, I use the, the most extreme is the MS drugs, and if you're raising the price from $10,000 a patient to more than a $100,000 list price, and you're giving them an average on those drugs, which is in my things of 8%, they're giving them like 10 times as much money while the prescriptions of these drugs are plummeting like 60 or 70%. So these, these, they're literally getting paid five to 10 times as much for doing less than half as much legitimate supportive patients. It's kind of a shocking thing which has been going on. And that's happened with MS drugs, cancer drugs, some of the insulins, which are old insulins plumbing in use. You know, I always say this is not complicated. I would, you know, it's fifth grade math. It's just percentages. How are you making money? You know, so one of the worst things about this whole thing is that, that a lot of times these drug companies, you know, they badmouth the PBMs. They act like they're their enemies. And I know they do give support to pharmacy organizations, but the, the real sad truth of this whole thing is, these, is that these drug companies and these PBMs these are partners. They're very close partners, actually. And they've been hiding that for a very, very long time. After our last conversation, I was really trying to make that connection in my head because based on what we saw on our side without the, the information that you shared, I was trying to figure out how that relationship unfolds basically in front of the Senate Finance um, Subcommittee. And when the blame games start and when they drag the PBMs and the uh, pharma companies in front of you know, a Senate subcommittee, and the finger pointing starts, and who's going to win and who's going to lose the the fight of public perception. And so I think that, you know, how I reconciled this in my head was, yes, they do try to, to, to fund the PBM fight to a degree, but ultimately they're not really funding the PBM fight. They're funding the idea of who's at fault when something is done about it and how it will affect them. So if the model does change, ultimately they're trying to buy favoritism or, or, or a, a, a more favorable light on their particular industry if they can sling some mud while this change happens. It's finger pointing everywhere, creating confusion and keeping people off the simple fact of how they're really making money. It's really just simply how are you making money, right? How are they getting paid? So most of the money on the price increases has always been going to the drug companies. They're the powerful guys in this. They're the big brother in this. Right? They're the, they the power brokers in this whole thing. They're the ones with you know, 10 times as much influence as Washington as the, you know, as the PBMs and the insurance companies at this point. So it's quite a fascinating thing. I, what I always like to point out is underneath it all, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff on my website. This is really simple. It's just basically percentage of massive list price increases fees, how they're getting paid. You know, it's all secrets, right? It's all about keeping secrets about how their money's really being made. The rebates for all these things are minuscule in reality. They're telling people mm-hmm. lots of stories. The rebates in Medicare Part T particular, the rebates are minuscule. It's all about these fees. And, the, and remember, this is, this is the brand market. Brand business drives it. What's happening to independent farm, in the generic business is collateral. That's, you know, it's only 15% of the sales. It's 90% of the volume, but it's not where the real, that's not where they're really making their money. You know, you're, you guys have been cut out of the brand market, right, with specialty pharmacies, mail order. You lose money on the brands, right? They're very smart people, and they're doing a great job, and they're, you know, they're just keeping everybody confused. They just keep talking about the same stuff over and over again, and, and they just wear everybody out. So, um, John, tell us about how you discovered some of the the, the brazen uh, talk that you were exposed to and your journey from there to, you know, where you've tried to take this gem of information um, and who you try to put it in front of and and the the resistance that you've had. So when I first began, I never planned on becoming a whistleblower. The first thing I figured out, as I just told you, is that, 
you know, both the drug companies and the PBMs were making a lot of money off of massive price increases on drugs that were plummeting in use. I knew something was very wrong. And it wasn't over, you know, it took me like four or five months later before I pieced together, you know, this whole thing about the bona fide service fees and the Part D and all that. That didn't really come about till June. But what I actually did, I, you know, I'm a doctor, you know, like, I like to say, you know, you guys, I know I've known lots of independent pharmacists over the years. You know, you guys all take something, you know, you take basically the equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath, right? Like I did. And I was like, and I'm an honest investor. I was like, you know, eight years later, I think I should have just looked the other way and realized this was going to go on. <laughs> you know, it would have been better for my career. But I was like, I'm not going to be part of this. So as soon as I, within a month of uncovering what, what to me was obvious, something very going on, I started contacting the FTC, you know, because I, I knew this was like about, you know, antitrust and mergers and, you know, the concentration of the PBM industry. I started contrasting, you know, contracting the FTC and the antitrust division and CMS and lots and lots and lots of people, reporters. And, you know, I got some early interest, but then everybody just disappeared. And I was like, I was like, you know, I can't get anyone to pay attention, you know. And then when I figured out the fee thing in the summer, I tried again and again. I actually had two conference calls with two separate parts of the Federal Trade Commission, and they just, I like think it was just like a screening call, and it was, they just didn't do anything. I never heard from them again. And then the real reason I filed the whistleblower cases is that after I figured this all out, this is the summer of 2013, I was like, yeah, I don't know what to do with this. This is, you know, it's really bad. And then the real reason I filed the whistleblower cases is that, as you know from the website, there was, there was a one-of-a-kind meeting. You know, when you do this kind of stuff, all of a sudden you get on mailing lists. And I get this notice about a corporate conference in October, early October of 2013 called Fair Market Value of Bonafide Service Fees. And I was like, and I was actually supposed to go on a little vacation. And I said, well, I, maybe I should go to this and see what these people have to say. So that's what I did. You know, I, you know, it was like one of those paid corporate conferences. And for two days, me and another guy who's actually a PBM consultant, and he didn't know anything about this, um, sat in a room and we listened to people from the PBMs and a, whole, a lot of the drug companies and they're the lawyers in this small little world about these fees and all these consultants. It's a very narrow world. And they talked about this whole thing openly about the entire business model had changed from rebates to fees. And they were quite aware that, you know, that these, these things weren't being paid at fair market value, that it was big legal trouble if people caught on. And I, I sat there and I took 80, 90 pages of notes. I, my mouth felt aghast. And at, after it, I thought, well, I guess I'd better try to do something about this. So I, you know, literally a week later, I wrote it all up. It's all on the website. I wrote, you know, I wrote a long report and all my notes from the thing, first-hand comments, and I called the Justice Department. And with their encouragement, I filed the first of two whistleblower cases, and the first one was on the MS drugs because it was by far the most severe. At the time, the MS drugs in the U.S. had gone from 10000 all of them at the same time, to $50,000 per patient while, uh, you know, while the usage of all these old drugs like Avonex and Copaxone and Rebif and Betasurin were plummeting. I was like, this is ridiculous. People are really being hurt. And I filed it in January of uh, 2014 with their encouragement. Like I said to you, it's a really simple scheme. These are national percentage of list price con contracts done with individual brands across the nation. You know, and they basically said to me, this should be a really quick investigation. We'll just check on it. And I was like, great. You know, I didn't file whistleblower cases because I thought, um, you know, I'm going to make a lot of money. I filed them because I was yeah. here trying to get people to do something and I couldn't get them to do anything. And so that's how it all began. You know, they issued subpoenas to these guys. And within, within a few months, they came back to me and said, yeah, you're right. Almost in all instances, they're getting these percentage of list price contracts tied to massive price increases. I, I thought that would be kind of like the beginning of the end. And my attitude was, please just stop this because this is really bad. And I was already aware at that time that it was happening with insulins and lots of other drugs. And as you all, we all know by now, you know, the MS prices have doubled, more than doubled since then, and so have all these other drugs. So the whole thing's been kind of incredulous. In terms of the Justice Department, again, all on the website, they verified the contracts, which is really the central part of this. Um, and then they proceeded to just not do much after that. First sign of trouble was, you know, you're seeing the complaints of these whistleblower cases. I gave them the names and contact information of 50, 45, 50 people who were at this conference with all their direct quotes. They never contacted any of them, never brought any of them in. 
So it became obvious that nothing was really going to happen in the first case, which actually led me to file the second case, which I filed in the Southern District of New York in October of 2015, hoping, if you know, the Southern District of New York has a history of being you know, more independent, I guess, and that was on insulin, cancer drugs, and a bunch of others, and the rheumatoid arthritis drugs. I thought, well, maybe I'll get a better result. Well, it was the same thing. So, and after that, you know, I, you know, I, my, my attitude has been from, that, from the first day to this day, people come first. There's, there's a website. Patients have to come first. If people can do this, this is not acceptable. And so I began challenging the Justice Department, which people don't normally do. You have an update call every six months, and they, you know, they tell you an update. And I, you know, I'm a, so I'm a professional stock analyst, and this is a really simple scheme. And they'd be telling me stuff, and I'd say, you know, and I, I just was not, I'm an honest guy. I said, listen, you're not really investigating. Maybe you should, you know, unseal these, and I'll do it, because <laughs> that's what I do for a living. And they stalled and stalled and stalled, and finally, four years later, in uh, March of 2018, they were unsealed, and I started going after them with, you know, and, and, you know, that's the complaints you see. And I've been trying ever since, you know, nine months later in December of 2018, uh, this is not much of this has been talked about, and none of this is in the public domain. The government came in at the last minute to uh, seek to desist my cases against my will, and the court actually allowed it. And what's shocking about that is that by that time, you know, there's a lot more information. And like I said in the thing, even, you know, basically Express Scripts and CVS admitted this. They came out publicly and said they weren't making money on rebates. And, Owen, as you, the, there's, only other, there's only one other way to make real money on brand drugs in Part D and in the private market is these fees. That's it. There's no, there's no, everything else is like a dollar here, a dollar there for brand drugs. Basically, an admitted scheme. Yeah. Why do you think that is, though, John? Do you think it's apathy? Do you think it's that they're so big that they can't be really touched at this point? These are the most, you know, among the most powerful companies in this country. That's really, you know, that's, you know, it's that's really the simple truth. They're really powerful, and you know, and I will, I will fully admit, you know, I've always said along the way, what I'm doing is obviously potentially very disruptive to our healthcare system. Right, because we're talking about basics of drug pricing. But you know, I'm I'm a physician, and you guys are pharmacists, and I, I I'm a simple person on ethyl. I said this is harming people. Right, you cannot. You know, these are diabetics dying, young people dying from from lack of insulin, cancer patients who aren't getting cancer, MS patients that are go, families that are going broke on this stuff. It's it's just something that can't be tolerated in our society. I would not be doing this if it wasn't literally. The evidence is literally, I think, virtually irrefutable. That's why the government had to come in and prevent me from these getting evaluated in the court. You know, remember, these, these cases were just the reason the Justice Department just got these dismissed. It's nothing to do with the merits. The, the court didn't even look at the merits. The argument of the Justice Department, and I don't know if you guys have followed what's been going on with them targeting whistleblowers. I'm one of the main ones. Is The argument is basically that it isn't worth their time and resources to monitor what I'm doing. And I was like, you must be kidding. Um, this, the fraud in this, if you notice, is very well quantified. We're talking about you know, the, the combined, when you have drugs going up tenfold for 15 years, you know, the, I carefully estimated them, is you know, $170 billion as of the end of 2017. So the idea, and you know, as you know, most whistleblower cases, the, the, the actual damages are not well quantified. You know, I'm a financial guy, so I did it very carefully. You know, it's like the idea that it isn't worth their time to monitor what I'm doing when the fraud potential abuse is $170 billion. It really just doesn't carry any. It's just not really realistic, if you know what I mean. John, mm-hmm. what you'll find out about this, the PBM industry is that they have so much money, and they're, yeah. they they hire a lot of smart people. They're always a step ahead of the game, and they they – they contribute to everybody who is voting on on every bill. They contribute to their campaigns. They take literally hundreds of billions out of the U.S. economy in all these fees and rebates and all the DIR fees and everything they take from us. And even after paying off every politician, paying their uh, high executives ridiculous salaries like $40 million a year, they still are ending with tens of billions of dollars that they, of profit. 
and they, they don't do anything. No other country in the world has PBMs. They're not exactly. needed in the delivery of drugs. Now, what you're saying, like, why, why I was so interested talking to you is because I was, you know, when I watched that Derricka Rice for CBS on the Senate hearing saying, you know, we, get, we, we give 97% of the rebates back. I'm like, yeah. you know, are they only keeping 3%? And then I realized they did a lot of things to hide what they're really doing. And I don't know if you know this. They have what's called a, a rebate accumulator. And the rebate accumulator is actually a company that they hire to collect the rebates. And that company takes a percentage of the rebate to start with and then gives the rest of the rebate to the company. And then that company, CBS Caremark or Express Scripts, passes on per se, 97% of the rebates to their customer. Well, that rebate accumulator company is owned by CBS or Express Scripts, and they're keeping on the front end the rebates. So then they have the fees and market concessions that you're talking about, which is another 8%. So right off the bat, you've got the 8% from that, the 3% they say they're keeping, and probably another 25% that they took on this rebate accumulator company that they own. That's oh, only yeah. one part of the. That's only one part of the scam. Then they have the DIR fees uh, on Medicare Part D plans. Everything is consistent, though. The more you drive up the price of the brand name drug, the more they make. So they make a exactly. higher percentage on rebates. They make a higher percentage on the fees, like you're talking about. The higher percentage of of cost in the Medicare plan, DIR fees are done on a percentage too. So they make more DIR fees. So everything they do. Is, is related to driving up the price of drugs and healthcare. And every time you get it and try to put it in front of somebody, it's so simple. That's what, that's what you're saying. Like, this is such a simple scam. Why isn't anything getting done about it? And it's because of money. Well, and, and I will just add to you, so you, so you, guys, you guys deal with the, these PBMs. You know, they're, they're driving you guys. You know, they're just relentless on you, right? So whatever you said about throwing money around for the PBMs, just keep in mind, you know, the money the drug companies are throwing, they're so much richer, right? Their margins, you know, these biotech companies, they have 50% operating margins. They are throwing around 10 times as much as the PBMs. You're just, so you live with them every day. They are wildly powerful, um, especially now that they're combined with the insurance companies, right? But, the, uh, you know, but no matter what you think how powerful those PBMs is, the drug companies are much more powerful. They have a lot more money to throw. Now, you can just look at the lobbying. It's, it's literally 10 times as much money, um, whatever that open secret drug company spending down in Washington compared to PBMs. But they're both very powerful. If the PBMs, might, if the PBMs weren't helping these drug companies raise the prices, if they were actually hurting drug companies, we would have gotten rid of PBMs 20 years ago. I, I agree with you. I agree with you, and then I don't agree with you because that is the case and that was the case. But if you look at the Fortune 500 and you look who took over, there's three or four PBMs ahead of the first drug manufacturer. Yes. They, they've actually taken over in that power struggle, and they've, they've become more powerful. And, and I think actually they've got to a point where the drug company now would say, uh, maybe, maybe we do want to hold this back, but they're doing just fine. They've, they've figured out how to survive in this market. The, the, the drug manufacturers are making their money regardless. Well, and, you, and you're absolutely right because, you know, I think the biggest stock in the S&P, in the Dow, right, the Dow, is United Healthcare now. And so when I say, there a, when I say for each individual drug, um, let's say just, you know, a drug like Avonex, you know, most of the $100,000 price is going to Biogen, and they're giving these PBMs an average cut of 8%. But remember, they're getting 8% on every specialty drug, right? So, so you're right. There, and there's only four of them now controlling everything. So you're right. I'm, I'm talking as an industry overall, but you're right. Individually, United Healthcare, CVS, Cigna, Express Scripts, and Humana, they're really powerful companies. You're absolutely right. And they're getting more powerful every day, as we talked about at the beginning. One of the things that really surprised me, though, is like when I got into this whole thing and researched it, I was like, if I could just get the facts out to people, the facts speak for themselves. And it's so wrong that somebody will have to do something about it. And you've got even more facts on the meeting you're in and the names yeah. of the people. And, I mean, you have so many hardcore facts on certain things. And not only did they not listen, they kind of shut you off. You know, so it, it makes you wonder, how far does this go up top? You know, are there people in higher places that don't want this fixed? You know, I always try to stick to the facts, right? So, you know, and again, I'm not – I don't like to make – 
personal attacks on anybody, but you have, a, uh, you have a gentleman from Eli Lilly directly involved in raising the prices that runs CMS, right? The head guy, who I won't say his name, but the head guy who's leading the, the Trump drug pricing initiative is a guy direct, you know, who was a lobbyist for Gilead, you know, the $95,000 hepatitis C drug, right? You talked about Derek Rice, right? Here's just tells you that they're not enemies, right? Derek Rice went from being the CFO to Eli Lilly to being the CFO of CVS, right? And now he's moved on to somewhere else. The, the, the former CEO of Glaxo became, is now the, what, like the second highest paid executive of United Healthcare running their PBM division. Industries that are enemies don't cross higher people to senior levels, you know? It doesn't happen. So it just tells you what's really going on and it, it's just very very powerful and you know I, I i have you know i have tried to keep the focus on patients i i could try to be more disruptive because you know i have twenty thousand emails every healthcare expert you could possibly imagine this in this country you know everyone you read in the newspapers trying to engage them to look simply look at this information you know you're the you're one of the first people so i'm very appreciative who who are actually looking. All I've ever asked is look at this information. It's not complicated. One of the saving grace of this is the fact that, you know, they, you know, I got, I got, I got terminated by my company one day after these cases came public. And they accused me of, you know, they're making nonsense claims about me. But nobody's, the way they've dealt with me is to basically to pretend that I don't exist and these whistleblower cases don't exist because they know, I always say, if you open a crack in Pandora's box, there's real trouble brewing. So I, I've been wanting them to come after me because, I, as I said to you guys, I'm an open book. I don't have anything to hide. I, I've said to them all along, I said to the Justice Department, I don't care if I make a nickel at this. That's not why I did it. I did it because I spent a year, filed these cases, trying to engage everybody and anybody, and nobody will pay attention. And that's why I've done it. I'm like you. I'm a healthcare provider. You don't harm people. And this is an egregious form. So if you keep it pure, right? And that's why, you know, that's why they, the way, the only way they've dealt with me is I don't exist. Um, and the cases don't exist. And, you know, these are the biggest whistleblower cases in history ever filed. There's not been one public word written about them. <laughs> not a word. And they've been, they're seven, six, seven years old now. And, you know, you know, they're, I haven't told you, but, you know, what I've been doing in the last couple of months is that I have decided the one thing I can do, I'm not trying to tear people down. This is about patience. I am going to create a public record. Someday something's going to happen. So these are now under appeal in the first, in the Court of Appeals in the First Circuit and in the Court of Appeals in the Second Circuit about, you know, this Justice Department dismissal about, you know, not worth their time. And, you know, they're very good cases, but... If we could, you know, if we could get people to look at the information, I think I agree with you. It will take care of itself, but we just got to get people to look at it. And there's a, there's a tremendous opportunity to do good for you guys. I think, you know, for pharmacists. I you know I feel for pharmacists because you're getting, you know, just you're, it's just unconscionable what's happening to independent pharmacists in this country. But I know it's a risk for you guys because I mean I lost my job because of this, but I'm not broke and I'll be okay. You know I'll never get another investment job again. But you know if if you guys take this on, I fully know. You know you, you know they're already coming at you. They'll come at you worse. But it's a question of being you know short-sighted and long-sighted because they're going after you anyway, right? There's whether a slow death or a fast death, and the only way to the only way to really deal with this is to take them head on. I hate to say it, and, and just talk about the truth. You know, I, and, it's, and the good thing is it's not complicated. I mean, when you have 60 people, all they got to do is bring one of these people in and put them under oath and have them talk about it, and it, and it can all open up. And that's why they didn't bring any of these people in from that conference, because I don't make stuff up. They, I wrote it all down. It's not complicated. Percentage of list price contrasts on massively increasing drug prices. You know, we need independent pharmacists. You are the people who actually help people, you know, these mail-order pharmacies, what kind of, you know, I always think, you know, what kind of services do you think they're actually providing from a mail-order pharmacy in the middle of nowhere? Exactly, exactly, John. And They're not and providing any service. They're actually getting paid for not doing much of anything, right? It's just the cost of getting the price increases through. That's what it is. So it's all there. I mean, it's just, you know, I think it's the time is right to do something about it. And you know, I, I'd really like to do something about it. You know, but I'm a little tired doing it on my own. It's been seven and a half years. And, um, hmm. 
No, and you know, and and I, you know, I'm not giving up. You know, you know, I haven't put any posts out there, but you know, it, it, it's going to take regular people to do it. You know, more. You know, a lot. You know, and but we can, it can be done. I have a question about that. So you mentioned it takes regular people, and that I think that has definitely been our experience as well. You know, a few years ago when we were really swinging out there trying to explain to the people who needed to know it most about pharmacy benefit managers and about things that shouldn't be happening as simple as a gag clause that a pharmacist couldn't tell a patient if there was a cheaper alternative to their you know prescribed medication we learn the power of working with patients but what we're talking about here it, it's it's so big it's 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 so uh, I think if you're a, a regular person, you know, a patient like I am, it looks like it would be overwhelming. Where where would a regular person start? How what what would you recommend? Especially being a doctor, what would you recommend to? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. You know, I will tell you that. I mean, I, I really think it's you know, remember, I, there's not been a public word. When I explain this to friends and family and regular people, they get it in two seconds. They're getting a percentage of these list prices. What are they getting it for? where they're supposed to be helping you. What are they doing? For, you know, and anybody who deals with mail-ordered express gifts, they know they're not getting anything other than their prescriptions mailed to them. You know? I mean, regular people do get it quite simply. And so I, I always think of it this way. I mean, I think I've tried to simplify as they go along. The simple things that people need to recognize, and I don't think it's a stretch from people, is that the drug companies and insurance companies, neither of which has a real positive view by the public these days, right, are partners in doing this and they're both making a fortune from it that's actually obvious just by looking at their income statements and their stock prices right you know they're both making you know all the all the revenue growth in the last 15 years has been the massive increase in brand drug prices right so they're all making money off of massive drug price increases then the question is how are they making it and so then the second step is oh you know and it's pretty obvious they've already admitted it publicly, they're not making money on rebates. You know, what the amazing thing is, when they announced, you know, it's in my thing, in, all, in, in Express Scripts and CVS in August of 2018, announced publicly in their quarterly earnings conference calls that they were making, you know, like 3% of their massively increasing income on rebates. The obvious question, which Wall Street will never ask, right? They all know this is good. Everybody, this is an open secret in the investment world and all these people, these drug companies, they all know about this, is... Um, you know, the obvious next question is, you're not making money on rebates. How are you making money? And there's only one answer on the brand drugs. I mean, they're making, you know, the DIR fees, but that's all. I mean, it's killing you guys, but it's small potatoes compared to fees on $100,000, $200,000 drugs. So you think about it, 8% on an Avonex prescription. It's more than $100,000 list price. That means every time they mail an Avonex prescription, to a patient who's probably been on it for 20 years and is getting no services other than mailing it, they're making eight or eight hundred or thousand dollars for basically postage. It's free money. It's just free money. So the margins on this are just astounding. And of course, they get to hide all this because, as you know, if you ever look, if you ever look at the financial statements of any of these companies, they disclose nothing. Absolutely, you don't have any idea how they're really making money. Can I circle back to that for a second? Because an article stands out in my head, um, I always kind of keep it close to me because I think that it tells a lot of it, not only what you're talking about, but the whole back to you know what reasonable admin fees are. And back in it was December of 17, Business Insider had an article where the SEC forced Express Scripts to break out that number in their balance sheet and actually follow the rules of disclosure. And one of the big things that came out of that was the SEC says, no, you can't just lump all the money that you get from a drug company into your accounts receivables and rebate scheme and not label it appropriately. But not only that, they asked a very important question. Who is your customer? Is your customer the drug company? Because based on your financial disclosures, it looks like Big Pharma is your customer. So that's absolutely true. So, yeah, exactly. And so when they you know talk about a reasonable administration fee and what's considered a rebate and how they classify it is based on how they want to classify it. So I believe in that article what came out from the disclosure from Express Scripts was that 66% 
was paid in rebates as pass-through, and 33% was retained as a reasonable administration fee. Once again, back to percentages. 33% for you know a, a multi-billion dollar pass-through of those monies coming from Big Pharma to the PBMs is a hell of a lot of money. And and one of the uh, when did they do the when did they pull it? Was it last spring? I guess they pulled them in front of uh, Wyden and Grassley. And one of the things that they asked, uh, or one of the uh, members asked, does it cost more money to do what you do? to do 10, you know, transmissions of, of drug payments, does it cost more money to do a million? You know, and the answer is quite simple. No, it's the same cost to them if they are processing 10 prescriptions or if they're processing 10,000 prescriptions, but their payments are still based on a percentage, which is absolutely egregious and absurd. The sad thing about this whole thing is that it was all so preventable. So if you look up any, I, and it's all in my whistleblower things about, uh, fees in general. So in, in, forget about just the druggacy, but in, in any normal world, a service fee, it's just like having someone paint the room in your house. The way they're supposed to be legitimately paid is basically on what's called a cost plus accounting. So you, know, you have someone paint your room, they come in and they say... Right, and it's a fixed fee, not a non-fixed fee. Not a, not a non -fixed plus, fee. A mar plus a modest profit margin. The idea of putting right. anything on a list price is just preposterous. It could have all been, this all could have been prevented. And that's why one of the things I always I point out is the reason this all happened is because back in 2000, in the, early, in the mid 2000s, we all know, right? You know, I think when Part D began, about 50% of volume in this country was 40, whatever, it was brand drugs. Then everything, all the old traditional oral pills, Lipitor, Clara, all the big hypertension, they all went generic. So in like a matter of a few years, you know, prescription volume, brand prescription volume went from like 50%, you know, now it's like 9%. So they were both going to start losing a lot of money if they kept the rebate models. And so, and they became, these drug companies became dependent on the handful of remaining brands, right? And so think about it. So my cases focus on the four categories, the main categories that were left as brand drugs. Everything else went generic. The four categories left were MS, right? There's, there's still no, not much generic there. There is, but it's not working. MS, rheumatoid arthritis, cancer, and diabetes. Everything else, hypertension, ASIN, everything else went generic. So the only way for these guys to avoid, on both sides, drugs and PBMs, massively plummeting um, profits because of generic erosion was to change the way they get paid to tie fees, this new fee thing, because the fees, remember, aren't counted in the prices in Part D, tie the fees to massive list prices of the few brands that were left. And then, of course, as the new ones come out, everything's priced with the new prices going up. If, they, if that didn't happen, the sad thing is that we should, what should have happened in the last 15 years is a massive savings for the public um, because of generic availability, right? So it's, it's really sad. It was really all about you know, them preserving their profits together. And what's amazing is that they did this literally overnight, transition from rebates to fees overnight in secret. So one of the reasons that they have to stay away from me is that, you know, in, in SEC, right, you have to tell them how you're making money. You're not allowed to hide. I estimate they're making 70 to 90% of their, some, and a lot of drugs, all their profits on these fees, and you're not telling anybody? That's not legal. One of the things you said, it, it definitely resonates. So since so many drugs have went generic, there should have been uh, massive savings to end payers, to uh, the, the companies providing uh, prescription insurance and to state and federal governments and to Medicare, the Medicare program. And mm -hmm. there hasn't been. And it's been because of two things, increasing brand prices with all these fees and because the generics are based on a MAC, and that MAC allows them to fill in the blank and pay their cell phone mail order and their cell phone stores way higher than they pay independent stores. And I've got tons of proof to prove that. That's not a statement. That's a fact. And where right now your competitor, which is exactly who they are, CVS, Optum, Express Scripts, our competitors are setting our prices so we go out of business. And they're mm -hmm. also setting their prices so they're extremely profitable. 
I've never, I've never seen any other business model like that. It's crazy. You know, these PBMs will do anything to make money, right? So the, it began with the brands, but then all the generic guys realized, oh, we can get in on this too. And they started raising the prices and all the game. You know, it's a whole separate world of games and generic prices, right? Because there's a huge volume. So, you know, and you know, the margins can be, if you're, you know, if you're able to raise the price of doxycycline to $200 a prescription for something that probably costs four cents to make. I mean, there's big money in that because there's a lot of volume. It doesn't compare to the volume of Umera, which sells $12 billion a drug, but there's still a lot of money to be made for, you know, for not too much. And, you know, they're killing you guys because, I mean, if I'm wrong, you tell me you guys have become obviously very dependent upon the generic market over the last 10 or 15 years. So they're just going for every nickel they can get. And they're, you know, like the DRR fees, they come in with that. It's like if you haven't got enough troubles, then they're coming after you for back payments, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. So it's all part of the same thing, you know, and um, they're just the simple thing is they're in it together. And not to mention the fact that they take a, the drug, like the generic drug, and they mark it up to whoever's paying the bill. That's called spread pricing. So, you know, the generic market should have saved a bunch of people a bunch of money. Oh, yeah. You should be able to get Lipitor for, you know, $8. But when that in-payer uh, is paying for it, they're paying a whole lot more than that because yeah. the PBM marks it up in spread pricing and makes money off of that. Well, I did a little, in one of my legal documents, I did a calculation, and I estimated, and I don't know, this is a few years ago, I estimated that what should have happened in Medicare Part D, that the average, the average cost in, for patients in Medicare Part D over, I, I don't know, the first seven or eight years of Medicare Part D, should have gone down like 50% for the average person. Instead, remember, this gave them cover, too, because the generic you know, created savings, not, not because they're managing pharmaceuticals better, just because things went off patent, right? And we all know generic penetration is actually higher outside of the PBMs, right, than it is in them. You know, so it gave them cover. So rather than spending that should have gone down 50 or more percent to help everybody, you know, they, they, they were going up 3 or 4 or 5%. And the, the mix is, you know, a massive amount of savings in generic drugs offset by, you know, these guys continue to make astounding profits by raising the profits on the few brands left. So it looks like they're saying, well, we're, all, we're managing trend and it's only up 3%. Yeah, but it should be down 50% without the price increases on all these brand drugs. And, of course, they added in, started playing all sorts of games on a lot of generic drugs too, right? So it's just really, you know, unbelievable. The whole thing is really unbelievable. Um, are you familiar with um, Ed Ketz? He's an accounting professor at Penn State. He was quoted in this article that I was referring to. Basically, he thought it was odd that Express Scripts wouldn't disclose its gross rebate receivables. And he says in the quote, I'm amazed that they would balk at this. Just make the disclosure and be done with it. They must have thought this was really important. And so what to make of the disclosure? And he says, I think at 40% of receivables, we can start thinking of the pharmaceutical companies as customers. They're not just bystanders in this equation. Disclosing gross rebate receivables would give investors a better understanding of Express Scripts business. It would clearly be better for investors if we had a better picture of the amounts of rebates. Do you think that investors in the PBMs should be worried um, if this ever does come to a head and they find that they've done some very shady things that they're going to actually be held accountable for, in your opinion? Well, I, mean, I think you guys said at the beginning, there are no PBMs outside the U.S., and all you got to do is think about it. We have prices here on these drugs that are tenfold higher than anywhere else because of this. We don't need PBMs. You know, the rebates on these $100,000 MS drugs has been on average 6%. Yeah, they'll pass that on, right? But they're get, the, the money is in the fees on the list price. The rebates on Umera and Enbrel, it's in their own, in their own PCMA report, are like 10%. So as it, they're raising the prices faster than the rebates. The rebates on oral cancer drugs, publicly disclosed by Tim Wentworth, of Express Scripts, you know, part of Cigna. He said he said it, he said in the conference call. I pay attention to the details. 88 of 90 or you know oral cancer drugs, which has been the big thing, have no rebate, none, zero. So all this stuff about rebates is again, it's a smokescreen. I would just encourage you. It's all in the brand drugs. It's all about the fees, and they have a million ways in their financial statements to hide stuff. Remember, you know, they have, like you talked about that um, rebate accumulator. They have all these subsidiaries. And they hide things in a million ways. In Part D, one of the ways, the key things, is that the only part of a PBM or these that has to report anything 
to Medicare Part D is the plan sponsor. So one of the key things is that they get paid in their specialty pharmacy, they get paid in their PBM, they get paid in their patient assistance program, they get paid a million ways. None of that is reported. So they have a million ways to hide stuff. So you can't even believe their financial statement. The, the way to look at this is simply to keep the focus on, you've already publicly announced you're not making money on rebates on brand drugs. How well do you make money? I, I like to use the example of the hepatitis C thing. Remember when that all happened? They talked about, oh, we're getting 40% rebates. Yeah, they're probably quoting one client that's getting 40% rebates, you know, or they're making it up. You can't verify anything they say without really doing accounting of how they're making money. And that's why it's, um, it's not complicated. A percentage of revenue, list price contracts, they're national contracts. It's actually quite easy to get at this, but you've got to go at the source. It's not the rebates. That stopped in 2006. That's all smoke and mirrors. It's fees on brand drugs is how they're making 70 to 90% of their money and then not telling anybody. That's a and good place right there to uh, start to bring this conversation to a close. I say that because, John, I think, I think what you just said right there is incredibly powerful, that it is not the rebates. That ended some time ago. This conversation has been so phenomenally rich with all of the details that you've brought to us. We're, we're coming to this part now where it's, it's going to be time to close up this particular episode, but I hope you will come back. Uh, I, I'd like to uh, take a moment and thank you so much for taking time out to join us and, and for bringing this conversation to our attention and to everybody's attention. For our listeners, uh, John Borzellari's website is drugpricetruth.org. He has a blog. He has He's completely transparent with his information. He, as generous as he's been tonight uh, with us, he has this information and more on his website. Owen, uh, I'd like to thank you for your participation today. Scott, thank you so much for being on the podcast. For everyone who is listening, thank you for tuning in. We look forward to having you on a future episode of the podcast and we'll say goodbye for now and see you next time.